0: hear the words of Scripture this morning, we listen for the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. Our Scripture today is from Matthew chapter 14, uh, and is probably not a Scripture you've ever heard uh, during Advent. It is one of the miracles in the life of Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, which was uh, the death of his cousin, his relative John the Baptist, when he had heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me. He said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray together. God, as we consider what it means to believe in miracles, would you... um, raise our expectations, and renew our hope, especially when that hope is long-awaited and when the cause seems hopeless. Teach us what it really means to be people of hope and people who long for miracles. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hit it. That's a miracle pill. Chocolate coating makes it go down easier, but you have to wait 15 minutes before potency. And you shouldn't go on swimming after for at least, one an, an hour. Yeah, an hour. A good hour. Yeah. Thank you for everything. Okay. Bye bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. Think it'll hurt. It would take a miracle. Bye bye. So, besides the need to weave the Princess Bride into a sermon every once in a while, that little clip uh, gives us a little bit of context for the way we think about miracles. Somewhere in the fairy tale genre, uh, and and somewhere in the, maybe the, the magic side of things, uh, maybe the Hail Mary pass when things aren't going well, is anything going to come good? Going to come of this? Well, it 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 would take a miracle, and, and almost saying that. We, in a way, say that we, we're not sure that we even believe in miracles. And that is maybe the starting point for us as we hit Advent this year. What do you really, like, there's a, a kid version of this. Uh, there is sort of the holiday spoofed up, you know, glowy lights, hazy kind of mystical kind of view of this. And then there's the adult version. What, what do you think about Miracles. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be wrestling with that question and try to come up with some adult faith answers. As we think about the miracles of Jesus, it would take a miracle as almost a throwaway statement for us. If anything good is going to come out of this, something beyond the extraordinary is going to happen, but we wonder maybe if the cause is really hopeless. Where's the place for being hopeful? Hopeful you know, realistic, able to navigate the complexities of life, and yet expectant? Shouldn't we decide that there are certain good things worth holding out hope for, even when that hope doesn't make any sense? Shouldn't we decide sometimes that hope itself is a good thing? And doesn't our relationship with God keep us open to something in that space, in that unexpected possibility, surprise part of life, continually continually orienting us to uh, what Ephesians says, to the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we even ask or could imagine, according to his power at work in us. Well, what does that look like? As you listen, you probably hear us talking about miracles in a lot of different ways. And one of the things we're going to do over the next few weeks is think about how we use the word miracle. What do we mean when we say miracle? And uh, it's somewhere trying to express an elevated expectation to cast a glimpse of something more than we normally see, to express our capacity to be surprised. But at the end of the day, miracles are always about the challenge to hope, to see possibility where there might not have been any visible before that we might dare to hope and really to figure out what we might dare to hope for. So at Christmas, we talk about miracles. We watch movies that have miracle in the title. All with the back, backdrop for us in the church of this story that is miraculous and full of hope. The incarnation is the miracle of miracles. God deciding to unite with us so that son of God, son of man, as we sang this morning, God's ways and human ways are permanently joined, affixed together. And so the expectations are raised. And those elevated expectations that we celebrate at Christmas come after long, long years. Of waiting long long years of unmet hopes where hope seems like it makes no sense at all the expectation that there would be a king in the line of David goes back to thousand a thousand years or more before Christ and through the history of Israel as we'll see throughout the series there's a lot of times when like the prophet Isaiah we heard today they, they, they called out for God to somehow break through and it didn't happen the way they expected. Over the course of the life of the people, the, the, the fact that they would still hope seemed ridiculous. Could God somehow break open the heavens and come down? Well, it would take a miracle, so to speak. And so that is where we begin. That's where we begin Advent, with a challenge to be hopeful and to let that challenge speak to the places that feel less. To discover in the miracle of the Incarnation a story that includes us. So what we're going to do throughout Advent is look at the miracle stories of Jesus. We're going to come to some of the stories through the life of Jesus and help us see them and see the Incarnation miracle through the lens of what we believe about miracles. So uh, today we're just going to get to thinking about uh, how we think about miracles. What, what, what do we mean When we say the word miracle, what are we really trying to get at? So I thought about this and came up with three versions, three ways that we use the word uh, uh, that get at what what we mean when we say miracle. So the first is this. Miracle is just another word for magic. Again, fairy tales that include miracles. Or uh, maybe God suspending the laws of nature in a way that we don't understand. Sometimes miracle means uh, really that we put all of the expectation on God and none on us. What I mean by that is we're sort of in a very passive way. We, we pray for miracles like when we were in high school or college and we showed up for the exam and we hadn't studied at all. And suddenly we become very religious people who believe in miracles, right? Because what do you have to lose, right? The proverbial Hail Mary Pass, This is a very passive form of miracle. All the weight is on God, not very much on us. And um, so sometimes we mean that. Uh, something that really God is going to do that we don't understand. I think we also talk about miracles in the complete opposite direction. And this is why maybe it gets confusing for us. Because if that's all on God, we also talk about miracles as maybe a human Herculean feat, something that we accomplish The 1980 U.S. hockey team beating the Soviet Union as a test case of the Cold War. And what do we call that? Miracle on ice. We love sports stories that include the word miracle. The uh, Vikings fans in the the room would know about the Minneapolis miracle in 2018 when the Vikings beat the Saints. It's worth mentioning. Also, the Minneapolis miracle is anytime the Vikings hit... Uh, kick a field goal and make it, but this was a 61-yard play at the, at the end of the game, the first NFL game to be decided, a playoff game to be decided uh, at the end of regulation by a touchdown, uh, 61-yard play, um, the Minneapolis miracle. What we mean by those like really Herculean feats of human ability is that we really appreciate when we accomplish things. But they're not really miracles, so to speak. that they, uh, they, We call it a miracle, but it's just very, very skilled people or very, very lucky people or someone doing a remarkable thing. And all the weight is on the human side. See what we've kind of laid out? So sometimes when we talk about miracles, we mean only God. And sometimes when we talk about miracles, we really only, we mean only us. And then I think there's the biblical way which is actually both. And in that, a challenge to raise our expectations and to hope. That in biblical miracles, and we're going to see this in every one that we talk about in the next several weeks, there is, there is an expectation, a renewed expectation of what God's doing, but also a call up to us as well. It's both things, and that's kind of what makes it a miracle, now, the writers of the Bible understood all of this in a very different way than we do. When I think one of the places we get tripped up, as, I, as I've said, with miracles is that we think of them as maybe the suspending of the laws of nature. But the truth is the, the writers of the Bible, the pe- people in the time of the Bible, did not have that framework. They didn't have an understanding that the universe was dictated by like impersonal laws of nature. They understood the world as the realm of God. Of, of heaven and earth where God is the king over both. And, and somehow, in a, in a very relational sense, those miracles draw us back to God. The Celtics t- talked about thin spaces where the veil or the, the line between heaven and earth becomes so thin that it becomes almost indistinguishable and God's presence becomes so palpable and so real that you understand things and experience things in a different way. And this is what a miracle is. It is always a reconnect back to God. It is not connected to impersonal laws of nature. It is connected to the God of the universe who is still at work and somehow a call up to something. So we use words like sign or symbol or foretaste, and in that, not only is God more active, a a realization maybe that God is still present and still at work, but also a clarification of and, and a raising of our expectation as well, that we're drawn up into something. Miracles can be cheap, the way we talk about them. It can be pretty cheap language. But a biblical miracle is, is just the opposite. It is, is a cha- it's a challenge. And I think that challenge is ultimately about hope and not a kid version of hope, but real hope that we can stake our lives on. And for the place of hope, especially when hope seems completely ridiculous. So let's tell the story of how this plays out in the feeding of the 5,000 Uh, It is the context of the story is John the Baptist has just died and Jesus in his grief goes off to be by himself. And what happens is that doesn't work. The the plan is foiled and the people see that Jesus is going where he's going and they run on foot and beat him there. So he goes off expecting to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and is going to be alone and he's the opposite of alone. Where I think any of us might have been frustrated, what we read is that Jesus had compassion. So one of the lead-ups to this miracle is about unmet expectation. I think that's kind of important. And the way Jesus holds a space for, uh, for hope and hopefulness and expectation, even when expectations aren't met, even in the place of human grief and loss, Jesus is trying to grieve, and instead he performs a, a miracle. And there's something to that. Um, that, you know, in a sense, our, our, our brokenness can make us bitter or better, and Jesus is better, but what we mean by that is he more, he's more compassionate. His grief allows him to have greater care and lean into the story of other people to have empathy, and he writes, "says this before the outward, invisible works of power, like healing the sick, which he did, or feeding five thousand, comes an inner and invisible work of power, in which Jesus transforms his feelings into love for those in need." And it makes you wonder. In other words, if the real miracle isn't mostly about Jesus able to hold that space of connection with God even when his, his major expectations haven't been met, even when he's experiencing grief and loss. Because the disciples have no such... Expectation, no such awareness, and this is kind of the fun part of the story. The disciples, like us, notice what Jesus is doing, and they're like, "Hey, let's let's help Jesus out." Do you ever feel that way? Like, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna help Jesus out a little bit here, and um, and and offer our part." And it's kind of funny. So they notice the problem. We are very good at this. We can always see the problem. What's the problem? Uh, all these people have come out here, and they need something to eat. Notice they also not only have the problem identified, but they already have their solution. And we do this with God too, right? We see the problem and God, here's what we're going to do. And I'm going to bring this idea to you. And we'll let, why don't we just go with that? And so the disciples say the people are hungry. It only, it's, it's just a little logical step to say, hey, let's send them to get something to eat. Now, it's important to recognize that that's not really like a bad decision. Like we shouldn't be too down on the disciples, in fact, I think in, in another scenario, maybe without Jesus kind of being especially aware like he is, any, anybody else would have said, yeah, sure, that sounds like a good plan. It's a very kind of human way of getting that done, which is how we get most things done. So yeah, send them, send them to eat, but, but um, that's, not, that's not what happens. Uh, it's not a sinful thing that the disciples fail to recognize, you know, like, oh, they're bad that Jesus wanted to do something here. I think it's almost, it's almost a chance for Jesus to just surprise them with something. This is a miracle about giving everybody lunch, if you want to put it in those terms. It's almost fun. It's almost silly. It's almost whimsical. Jesus, I imagine, hears their little spiel and says, all right, let's have some fun with this. A little twinkle in his eye says, yes, I agree with your problem. They need to eat but now you give them something to eat. About 25 years ago, I went to Mexico on a mission trip and met some missionaries there and, um, and I've kind of stayed in contact with them since. And uh, one of them, Muriel Henderson, passed away two weeks ago, I think, um, after a life's. Uh, work in, in Mexico around rural poverty and uh, implementing several programs that are ar- around agriculture and sustainability and lots of things. Uh, anyway, their, their ministry is called Give Ye Them to Eat. It is the King James Version of this scripture. You give them something to eat. And it was the embodiment of that mixture of godly expectations and human expectations creating a different story for people's, people's lives. And that's what this little miracle of feeding people their lunch, I think, is. It's actually a fun way uh, for for Jesus to get in there and say, hey, maybe this is going to be a little bit more than you expected. And not just in the big ways, but also in the little everyday ways. Maybe it is important to hold out that space of, of hope or expectation in kind of every part of life that God's possibility might creep in in the, the big things, but also the small things. And that maybe we before we leap to our solution to the problem that we've identified, maybe we ought to ask God about it. Maybe we ought to stay open. Maybe there's more possibility here than we thought. The other thing I love about this miracle is that it brings us into it. And, and you notice that as the story is told, it's very intentional. You know, so Jesus says, well, what do you have? Don't you think if God wanted to like, just poof like a McDonald's Happy Meal for everybody out of thin air? May, I mean, conceivably. If we're going to believe in miracles, we could do that, right? And I know what, we have to have some, some starting point. And it's somebody's lunch. Well, tell me what you have. And it's almost like uh, the disciples kind of justifying their perspective. We don't have much. Do you identify with this story? (laughs) We don't have much, it's just some bread and some fish. A small beginning. About 15 years ago, we were um, working with, um, trying to get a little thing called the foundry off the ground. And um, and, and things kind of weren't going very well. In, In fact, it was about a year and a half or two years into it and the thing was about to die. Uh, had started uh, kind of in a way, and then there wasn't a lot of vision, and we weren't sure what to do. Even um, as we were present in the west end of our city, we didn't have a plan. And then some people left, and it was kind of it was it was kind of worse than if you'd done nothing, because we had gone in and kind of started some stuff and got in, in there with some kids, and then we were going to be another force, uh, you know, another group of people leaving them. So we didn't know what to do. So we um, got some, like, re some people, got together, and we met at our Greenwood campus. And it wasn't just Broadway folks. It was people from all over, and um, the, 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 the state even. And we had a speaker who was uh, doing this kind of work in Louisville. We thought, we'll learn something from what they're doing and get a, get a vision. And that process actually took the next year and a half, <laughs> by the way. But that day, I don't remember a ton about that day at Greenwood that we spent, but I remember two things. One, I remember us getting down on our knees at the altar and asking God to guide us. And I think that was really important. But the other thing I remember when the foundry, by the way, somebody said, uh, we should rename it the floundry, was what we were, that was somebody said that, that day, by the way. Um, the, the, the other thing that I remember is something that that gentleman said from Louisville. He said, you know, don't fret small beginnings. That little phrase, don't fret small beginnings has stuck with me ever since then. Because it's the five loaves and two fish part of the miracle. It is the part of our own unmet expectations where we think, you know, this isn't going well, or it's kind of even worse than not going well. We're trying to just get back to zero. None of us on that day when somebody told us, hey, don't fret small beginnings, thought we're gonna change the story of hundreds of children's lives over the course of generations. Nobody had that vision except maybe God. And then the joy of bringing us with him on that journey. And this is how it works. N.T. Wright again says this. This is how it works when someone is close enough to Jesus to catch a glimpse of what he's doing. To have some sense, hey, maybe I should help. And, And then not really comprehending like the disciples, offer up what little that we have. He goes on to say how Jesus always takes that always holds it up as he does in the story with the five loaves and the two fish and offers it up to God, then breaks it and makes it available back to us. And did you notice that is what happens? The miracle doesn't happen when Jesus throws bread out into the crowd and it you know disperses. He hands it back to the disciples. There's, I think it's a critical step. Here's what little we have. Jesus takes it and then he hands it back. And then he takes that and they, then they hand it to the crowd. And then whatever happens, happens in the midst of these people being brought into the miracle. Do you catch that? It's not a miracle until we're brought into it, until we become part of the miracle. And I think this is where miracles are most important where everybody else has given up hope and we don't feel like we have a lot to, to, to build on when we are tempted to fret small beginnings. That's precisely when God does something miraculous. And that's what we're going to see over the next few weeks. Ordinary bread and fish turn it to, uh, into hope and um, sustaining hope. And when Jesus will take a moment with the wind and water and talk about peace or how he will uh, turn water into wine and spark just a little bit of joy and how he will use an unwed mother and a little baby to announce salvation. And this is the incarnation miracle, permanently putting together both sides of miracle, elevated expectation of God, but also elevated expectation of what God would do with ordinary people, humble people. It is the challenge to renew our hope, which I think probably, well, it it would take a miracle. And one of our challenges very specifically during Advent is to renew that hope in in a specific way. You heard about it first thing this morning in our video that all throughout Advent and then on Christmas Eve, we are asking you to be part of the miracle. When it comes to children in Kentucky, and a place where we would think it would take a miracle, the foster care system, can I get an amen? <laughs> to the, the reality of abuse and poverty with children in Kentucky where we aren't doing so well. I think if anybody who knows anything looks at the reality of kids in Kentucky, we would say it would take a miracle. And we perhaps might make that our throwaway line. Well, that's that's what it's gonna take and in, in, in some way kind of make it a passive thing where God's going to have to do something. I think there are a lot of people also who are working very hard, and, and the version of miracle that we put on the the people working in these areas is that you're going to have to figure out yourself. But what if the church comes in with a different expectation and like, no, we're going to support you. We're going to help you. And we're going to bring our expectation and our work and our hope into a situation and see what happens. We're going to bring our resources. So we're going to take up an offering for uh, the United Methodist Children's Home on Christmas Eve. And we're going to expect a miracle. And I I mean, truthfully, I, I don't always want to talk in those terms because what if the offering isn't that much? Or what if uh, you know we sort of don't get all drummed up and excited? What if it, on our human side, we kind of fail? I think there are a lot of reasons why we don't expect miracles. But this time uh, of year, maybe, maybe, perhaps, this is a chance for us to renew that hope. And Advent is the challenge to do just that, to renew our hope and to expect a miracle. And so I invite you to pray about that as we pray together, as we conclude my time with you, and as we continue in worship, let's pray. God, as we come to a time of offering, we offer ourselves in the way that a little boy offered his lunch. We offer ourselves in the way 12 ordinary fishermen and tax collectors offered themselves. That we offer ourselves as disciples of Jesus now. Perhaps tempted to fret small beginnings. So may our giving today be a, a sign, a symbol, a foretaste of something different. And may you renew hope and expectation in us as people holding out that space for hope because we believe that that actually hope itself is a good thing and that it matters and that there are things worth hoping for even when they don't make sense. So we offer ourselves up as Jesus offered up those meager resources. Trusting you to do the thing that you alone can do and then offering it back to us that you might just make us part of the miracle.